So it's my privilege today to open God's Word with you. In just a moment, I'm going to read a couple of verses from Philippians chapter 4. But first, let me tell you something that Ann and I just had happen recently. Uh, we, uh, Ann was riding with me, and usually we drive separate vehicles because we're at different places on different schedules. We happened to be in the car together, and I said, Ann, would you mind if we stopped by and drove through the car wash? And she said, that would be fine. And it just dawned on me that Ann and I never go through the car wash together. It just doesn't happen. And I'm so excited about the car wash that I generally use that on the way over, I was just telling Ann about what a wonderful car wash it is. And when we got into the car wash, I was still telling her how wonderful it is because it is wonderful. They're, they're fast and they're dressed well. They dress a lot better than I do. They're dressed well. They have cute little bow ties and white shirts and little black slacks and they run out to greet you and it's relatively inexpensive and it's owned by a family that we kind of know the founder of. And I'm just telling Anne, they, all this stuff, I'm just bragging. We get into the car wash and there's the water that comes and there's the soap and there's the swish swish of all the washers. And I'm still telling Anne what a great car wash this is. See, I'm desperate for content, aren't I? No, no, no. No, I'm a very grateful person. Let's frame it that way. Well, what's your greatest fear of going into a car wash on a very busy day? Hmm? Yeah? Oh, it, it happened. It happened. There was a monster, almost brand new Chevy Tahoe in front of us that had a trailer hitch from hell. It just protruded out like a weapon. And between the soap thingies, I'm observing this Tahoe up there, and, and then I notice that the Tahoe stops, and our car continues to go forward, and I experienced what we call anxiety. You know what that's like, don't you? Anxiety. It's this state that spills over into emotions of fear and worry and distress. And I immediately went to prayer. This is what that sounded like. I honked the horn. The functional equivalent of my favorite prayer in the Bible. It's Peter's prayer when he's about to drown and he yells, help. I prayed at the guy in front of me and I honked the horn and I was yelling and, and I said, move, move, drive, drive. As our car went into the trailer hitch and smashed the grill. Well, this Tahoe moved slightly ahead. I was slightly relieved. The Tahoe stopped, and our car again came to hit him. I looked in the rearview mirror. There's a car right behind us. I am honking. He finally drives out of the car wash. And when we drove out and saw him pulling around to park, he wasn't the only car parking there. The other car, and then the first car in the whole thing had parked. And when we exchanged our stories about what had happened and there was a malfunction in the car wash and it wasn't kicking out the first car, it was just running the rest of us into them. I just thanked the guy in front of me for, for driving forward and doing what he needed to do and responding so I didn't entirely smash the, the front end of the car and the radiator. What did I do to anxiety? I did what you do. It's our natural state. We ask for some help. And then when it comes... We thank people for doing that. Isn't that what we taught our kids and teach our grandkids to do? Say please and thank you. Isn't it interesting that all truth is God's truth? He revealed truth to us in Scripture. We discover truth through His general revelation of life. And this morning as we enjoy the next two courses, courses three and four of this meal, we're going to take a look at what God invites us to do in feasting with Him. In this series that Ann started last week on feast, 
with Jesus. And we're using last week and this week the acronym ACTS, A-C-T-S, and introduced us to courses one and two last week of adoration and confession. And today we'll talk about thanksgiving and supplication. Notice on your outline or in your Bibles as I've turned or on the screen potentially, the verse that we'll read first from Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, it says this, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving present your requests to God. In a few minutes, I'm going to read the next verse as well, but Let's kind of unpack this for just a moment. Dealing with anxiety. Do not be anxious for what? Anything. That, that is as comprehensive as you can get. It was a couple of years ago, Ann and I were considering uh, joining in a business relationship, uh, a guy that we didn't know well. And, and so we were having some interviews together and really finding out who we were. And he asked several insightful questions. One of them was this. He said, Jared... What keeps you awake at night? That's a great question if you're wanting to know someone, isn't it? Now, if I were to ask Isaac and Danya, or some of the rest of you with babies in your home, Annie, I know what the answer would probably be. It would be the baby, right? But other than the baby, what keeps you up at night? You know what it feels like. We all experience it. You lay in bed, you try to sleep, there's too much going on in your heart, the emotions in your mind. You wake up in the middle of the night, maybe in a cold sweat. What keeps you, gets you up? You wake up too early in the morning. You try to doze back off. You can't. The anxiety is spilling over. I love this quote about worry. It says, worrying is like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but it gets you nowhere. Yeah, been there. Or this powerful image. Worry is a thin stream of fear trickling through the mind. If encouraged, it cuts a channel into what all other thoughts are drained. Maybe you've met someone that has the Grand Canyon channel in their mind and everything is turned to something to worry about. In the middle of this, God meets us right where we are and gives us all general instruction. And it sounds audacious on the surface because it's comprehensive. He said, don't be anxious about, you said the word with me, anything. It's the whole deal. But in every situation, I want you to deal with this anxiety. And he gives us this powerful two-step process to deal with anxiety and worry. Thanksgiving and supplication. In fact, let's unpack it that way. The, the text reverses the order. It says, with prayer and petition. Some of your Bible translations will have the word supplication. It's a little bit older English word. When you do the Greek word study on prayer and supplication, what you discover is that there's almost no nuances of difference. It's redundant synonyms is what he's providing. He's reinforcing. We're coming and we're asking. We'll look at supplication in just a moment. But let's look at the with thanksgiving first of all. We discovered this about Thanksgiving, and in fact, in our uh, uh, Bible journal reading, for those of you that are reading through the Bible this year, I think it's the reading tomorrow that we find in Luke chapter 17. And Jesus there is encountered, countering 10 lepers, and many of you know the story. They come and they ask for his help, and as they go, 
they are physically healed. And this is what it says about the tenth guy. When he saw that he was healed, he came back praising God in a loud voice. And he threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And Jesus said, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. What we noticed around Thanksgiving from this passage is that there were two levels of healing that happened in this story. There was the physical healing that happened for all ten of them. But when the one man came back and gave, would you say it with me? Thanks. Jesus pronounced on him, your faith has made you well. Wholeness. It's the shalom. It's the wellness of God that's comprehensive, inside out, spirit, soul, and body. How would you know if someone that you ran into was experiencing faith? It wouldn't be because they were making positive affirmations, though those can be very powerful. And I think positive speech makes a lot of sense, and I recommend it. You wouldn't necessarily know because they were speaking really loudly. That's may be helpful to express passion, but it's not necessarily faith. It certainly wouldn't be that they were expressing denial, that real circumstances that are difficult, negative, and stressful are going on. How would you know if someone's really expressing faith in God? Thanksgiving is the sound of faith, the giving of thanks. Happens naturally in our lives. Imagine that you're a parent or maybe a grandparent, and the little kid comes up, and now they're beyond toddler stage, and they're beginning to process life in a little bit more complex way. And let's assume that you're a really good dad or grandfather, and that child has discovered that your word is as good as your bond. And when you say you'll do something, you will do it. And so if you've become trustworthy in her mind, and she asks you to do something, and you say, I will do that, she may likely say thank you before she ever sees you do that. It's the faith-filled response to faithfulness. The sound of faith is the giving of thanks. God's Word through the Apostle Paul says it this way, don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation with prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, Let your requests be made known to God. The giving of thanks. And that giving is specific. Ann and I, we've been here about a year and a half now, and those of you that are a regular part of this church, you've already discovered many of my quirks, haven't you? Yeah, you have. And they've become less distracting for you, and you've mentioned them less often, and you know that relatively I'm harmless. Isn't that true? Yeah, a little bit of response to that. Just a little bit, yeah. Well... I, um, I have these different interests and passions, and, uh, and I'm a reader. We both are, and we have a ridiculous library at home, which has already in the course of our life been sorted out and books given away many times. And one of the reasons we like the Kindle now is it doesn't, we don't have to get a new house to get more room. But one of my uh, little hobbies a couple of years ago was, was learning, uh, studying about happiness, which has become quite a scientific pursuit in the last 12 years. You've seen some of the popularized books that have come from that. So I was reading, reading uh, some of the, the uh, reports on happiness. Uh, here's one of my favorites, the how of happiness, or authentic happiness, or happier 
He needed to one-up them. And then he came up with his sequel, Even Happier, he came up with. One of the things that studies that have come not from God's specific revelation, when we read Scripture, we're getting God's specific revelation of truth. When people discover how God designed his world to work, whether in the physical or the social sciences, and discover truth, that truth, which is general grace, truth, confirms, illustrates for us what God has specifically revealed in Scripture. That's why this won't surprise you that what all of these studies about happiness have in common is that the number one contributor to happiness is gratitude and the expression of gratitude, which is giving thanks. Notice these results. I quote, People who are consistently grateful have been found to be relatively happier, more energetic, more hopeful, and to re- they report experiencing more frequent positive emotions. They also tend to be more helpful and empathic, more spiritual and religious, more forgiving and less materialistic than others who are predisposed to gratefulness, who are less predisposed. Furthermore, the person is inclined to gratitude, the less likely he or she is to be depressed or anxious or lonely or envious or neurotic. And wouldn't we say, God said that so much quicker, didn't he? Don't be anxious about anything. But in every situation, with prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. That's what he's instructed us to do. Now, this specific giving of thanks deal is it's a, it's like a muscle that I have to develop and learn. Because I'll tell you, I don't know if I'm naturally disposed toward gratitude or not, but I know that I am becoming a more and more grateful person. I do know that it requires some discipline on myself. Just like developing a bicep over time will require some thoughtful resistance training. So I've been working on developing my giving of thanks muscle. And my regular journal is helpful for me. I don't do it in written form. Many of you do. Some of you, like me, do it on a computerized journal. But it's helpful for me to record my feast one-on-one daily time with Jesus in part because I have some short-term memory issues. And sometimes early in the morning, when I'm generally not functioning at 100% anyway, I kind of go, uh, thankful. Uh, yeah, gratitude. That's a good thing. Thank you, Jesus, for everything. <laughs> Amen. It's just kind of a general umbrella, kind of a dealy there. And it expresses genuine gratitude, but it doesn't express specific thanks. And when I turn back to the journal, I go, oh, yeah, I asked for that. You did that. Thank you for that. Some of you have heard me tell the story of uh, one of our early mentors, uh, Roy Hicks uh, Jr., uh, Sr., uh, two generations beyond us. And, and one of the things that uh, he mentioned was that often he says thank you 100 times a day just to kind of prime the pump. And he was kind of an eccentric guy, and I think I picked up some of my stuff from him. And I thought, well, that's kind of a weird thing. You know, just that sounds like a mantra, doesn't it? Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Take a breath. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. That's 10. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. That's 20. You really don't want me to do to 100, do you? You get the point, right? Yeah. And I decided to practice that, and I learned something about that, that if I was reasonably engaged in saying thank you 100 times, that it did begin to create a focus of gratitude out of which specific thanks seemed to be generated. 
Yesterday morning, I happened to get up, and I was uh, pushing the buttons to make the first cup of coffee, which is generally something that I start the day doing, and the people who live with me support that behavior. Yeah. So uh, I was punching the buttons, and I thought, I think I'll say thank you a hundred times to start the day. And I did. I did my little routine. And, and what always happens, happened. I began, to, I began to have a sense of gratitude. And then I just started looking around and giving specific thanks. You see, we summarize Thanksgiving this way. First of all, it is the sound of faith. That's why when we pray, we then trust our Father to respond. And we say thank you. And specific thanks engages us with specific gratitude about what He's doing in our life and how He's blessed our life and those around us. The giving of thanks is course number three in adoration, confession, thanksgiving. And let's wrap up this foursome course meal with uh, supplication. Supplication is a relatively unused word in American English language, but it's still used somewhat in uh, British English. In fact, uh, Oxford University still has a practice for all of the undergraduates. They have to uh, submit a thesis, a lengthy document of research and study that they've done. And the process of submitting the thesis at Oxford is presenting your supplication. Supplication is an old word which means to ask someone who is your superior for something. So if Daryl and I had a conversation, we're friends, we're brothers, and we're peers, I might ask Daryl for something, and that would be a form of prayer, which is general asking him for something, and he can respond whichever way he chooses. But that would not be the idea of petition or supplication. If I were asking a superior in government with a petition, I would be pleading along with others of you to that superior authority for them to respond on our behalf in the way that we were asking. And so we come, instead of our anxiety and worry, to God with our requests and petitions for Him to intervene. And when we ask on our own half, we call that prayer. And when we ask on behalf of others, we call that intercession. We engage in their life and ask on their behalf. Some of you have heard Annermy mention that uh, years ago, I had had the privilege of leading a Bible study on Tuesday nights in one of the former governor of Oregon's homes. And we travel an hour or so and get to the home. And it was an amazing collection of people. And there were people who'd known the Lord for many years and some who were just coming to faith and people who were considering the claims of Christ did not consider themselves Christians. It was a wonderful time of study and discussion. And we were walking our way through the gospel of John together. And on many occasions, the the former governor would stop and he would argue. These were wonderful arguments. They weren't intended to be contentious. It was his own struggle about faith. And he struggled with this idea that we would bring to God everything. For him, it felt dishonoring to bring to God everything. So he kind of figured out what the top 5% of his problems were, these anxiety inducers, because those were the big ones that probably God was worthy of being bothered with. And then he would handle the 95%. That's how he negotiated and framed his relationship with God. 
You see, the piece that he was missing was two pieces. First of all, actually, that's a form of arrogance, not humility and honor. It says to God, I will handle most of my life, but when the big ones come, I'll go ahead and put a quarter in the machine, and I want you to pop out an answer on the big ones. Just the big ones. I'll handle the rest. Thank you. The second thing it does is is it dishonors God's greatness and power and majesty and ability and ultimately His love that He wants to be engaged in every piece of your life. The good, the bad, and the ugly. The big, the medium, and the small. Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, with prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And this is what we read in verse 7, is the result of our coming with thanksgiving and with supplication. Notice it with me. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's the result. It will guard. Maybe the picture there isn't of the Roman centurion soldiers who would have been the first thoughts that would have come to mind for these folks who lived in the city of Philippi, which was a Roman city. Maybe a more cultural functional equivalent for us would be the secret service that surrounds the president, and you know what they look like, and They tend to wear dark suits, and they usually have sunglasses on, even today's like today, because they don't want you to know where those eyes are going. And they stand with impeccable posture, and they have funny things in their ears. And we have a hunch that they're probably well-armed. And what they are constantly doing is not looking at the person of honor. They are constantly looking outward at the crowd to spot any possible hint of anyone that would be a threat to the person of honor. This is the promise for people who pray and give thanks. The peace of God, wow, will guard, that's the word, your hearts, your emotions, your minds, your thoughts in Christ Jesus. What keeps you up at night? Isn't it the combination of anxiety in the heart, of emotion? You feel it. It spills over. It physiologically affects you. Your heart begins to pace. Maybe you even feel or begin to hear the pulse in your ear, and you have a sense that you're flushing a little bit, and your blood pressure is probably rising, and, and there's anxiety of heart, and it spills into your mind, and there's those that drip of a stream that begins to cut that channel. And as much as you try to think other thoughts, that now channel of anxiety pulls your thoughts toward it. God knows exactly how we're wired and our tendency toward anxiety. And He says to us, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything with prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God that transcends understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. As Ann and I were talking and praying and talking with the team about uh, 
where we felt God wanted us to go and his word in our public services on weekends this year, we really felt drawn toward talking about our personal relationship with Jesus at the beginning of the year. So on New Year's weekend, we talked about the good life domains, eight major domains of our life and what God's calling you toward and what you're asking him for in this year and what you'll do about that and and how you're going to cooperate with him in this year. And then we began this series about feasting and this first two weeks and the next three weeks, Ann and I and Isaac are going to be talking about this. Why are we so passionate about it? Why am I so passionate about one-on-one time with Jesus? I think when we get to know people, we really discover what makes them tick, don't we? And You've heard Pastor James' story about uh, meeting Jesus when he was 17 years old, and his family's a a large family, and and James is the first person in that family to accept Christ, and he's told some of his story about the, the tremendous brokenness and hurt and pain that his family suffers. No wonder he's so passionate about students coming to know Jesus Christ and them discovering the joy of loving God through worship. No wonder he's so passionate. When you hear his story, you know what makes him tick. You've probably noticed that Anne's pretty passionate about kids. Have you noticed that? Yeah. The first in her large family of eight to meet Jesus because a neighbor girl knocked on the door and invited a nine-year-old to come to church, and she met Jesus there. And over the years, ultimately over the decades, all eight in her family came to have a living faith in Jesus Christ. No wonder she's passionate about children coming to know Jesus. I want to tell you, thank you, Nikki. Thank you, yes. And Nikki loves kids too. I want to tell you a story as we move toward concluding today about why I'm so passionate about this one-on-one stuff with Jesus and why I invite you. If you are a regular feaster, make it creative and make it fresh this year. And if you're not a regular feaster, test the waters, test the food, be a taster. It's good. I'm the baby of the family. How many of you join me in that distinction? Yeah, it's a wonderful thing, isn't it? I hope it works for you as well as it works for me. I Let's see, my sister's not here today, so I'll tell you that she's 13 years older than I am. I got that in today. And uh, Judy, who was uh, 13 years older, had gone away from home. She was living in Salem. I think she was about a 19-year-old. And then our next child in the family, uh, my other sister, Joyce, was uh, 17, and she was a senior in high school. And then my brother, Jim, was 12, and then I was 6. And so I'm the fourth and the youngest, and it worked really well for me. Uh, We lived in a little... Uh, country farmhouse. And when I say little, it really is. I want you to think in terms of small as I unwrap the story. Yeah, little, little living room. And I, that day, my uh, sister Joyce, when she came home from high school, uh, this is going to sound so cool. So if you're, if you're an older sister, would you be this nice? She would come home from high school and she'd sit with me on the couch and she'd read to me. And that spring, she was reading through Heidi. And that's when I first fell in love with the Swiss Alps. Never got into the goat thing, but I liked, loved the Heidi story. And, and that day, like usual, she sat on the couch, put an arm around me, and she read a chapter of Heidi. And it was nice spring weather. And so afterwards, after we had our evening meal, Jim and I went out, and we had a softball, and we were playing catch together. A great, loving family that loved God, a wonderful older sister, a wonderful older brother. And Jim was my hero. In fact, it was just the previous year when I was five that our family, who worshipped in a conservative Mennonite congregation, occasionally uh, snuck away to do things horribly radical. We went to 
a wild Pentecostal church. Uh-huh, we did. And we sat on the back row because that's the safe place. You know, Carmen, it's the safe place to be. If you finish before I do, you can discreetly leave. And um, well, we would go because we were drawn, my parents were drawn to the life of the Spirit there, but they really couldn't get into the physical gymnastics that accompanied that kind of really, really old-time Pentecostal worship. Yeah, had they had chandeliers, they would have swung from them. But not having those, they made up for it. It was a lot of entertainment for a little guy. Well, I had seen my brother Jim during the offering, the altar call, which they did. And of course, we knew the deal. It was rather manipulative. They folded it out in stages and they made you out yourself with more and more opportunities. And so the first thing was, if you were going to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord and get right with God and accept Jesus' forgiveness for your sins, that you would raise your hand while everybody else had their eyes closed. And then after that, of course, they made everybody stand up and they made you come down and stand in front of the altar. And I had watched Jim take that walk and talk with him about that. And I was so impressed in how my brother got saved. So it was a few months later, five, my mother talking with me saw me crying one day and realized what was happening was that I was experiencing Holy Spirit conviction of my sin. I was wanting to say yes to Jesus. And she said, can I lead you in a prayer? And I said, no, I want to get saved like Jim did. And so next revival meeting at the Wild Church, our family was there taking our place on the back row, and they went crazy and did the thing. My hand was the first one up. I was the first one to walk the aisle. I knew the routine because I was going to get saved like Jim. Great big brother. Well, that night, Joyce awakened me to tell me that our parents had taken Jim to the hospital. He was born with several congenital heart conditions. He was being scheduled for open heart surgery. It hadn't happened yet. So at one or so in the morning, Joyce and I are sitting on the couch where earlier she was reading a chapter of Heidi to me. And we waited and we waited. And finally, our parents came home and they were quiet. They had been crying. They came home alone and told us that Jim had died on the way to the hospital. So what does a family do at a time like that? My parents always not wanting to put other people out, knowing that our pastor was bivocational and taught junior high and needed to get his rest to go teach kids the next day, weren't going to call him in the middle of the night to make a 45-minute drive to our home. They weren't going to call family other than our sister Judy that my dad would be going in a few hours to pick up in Salem and bring home. So it was the four of us sitting in the little living room at 2 in the morning And there's hugs, and there's tears. There's not a lot of words in our family anyway, and not a lot to say at a time like that. So what does a six-year-old see unfold in one of the most traumatic times of his family life? After hugs and tears and time together, my dad slipped over, and it was just two or three feet to the chair next to the wood stove where every morning I knew he got up and opened his well-worn, not dusty Bible and spent time one-on-one with Jesus. And then he would turn and kneel at the chair and would pray before he headed off to work at the, at the veneer mill. And as he slipped over and picked up his Bible, my mom slipped over again just four or five feet to a little dining room kind of table that was there where she, when I got up in the morning, would see her spending time with Jesus And they both were reading the word, Joyce, on the couch with me, arm around me. And I watched them 
And at one point, my dad stood up and went over and pointed to a place in Scripture to my mom, and she looked at him and nodded, and they continued. And the sun came up, and phone calls were made, and people began to come, and our life began to process, as a family would, this, this event in our life. So why am I so passionate about we as a church feasting with Jesus, refusing to accept the banquet buffet that we enjoy together on weekends as more than it is. It's one great meal together. But believing that the God who loves us so much primarily has come to save us for relationship with Him so that we would be with Him and He with us. Anne quoted this great verse from Revelation, the last book of the New Testament, where Jesus said, Take a look. I'm standing at the door and knocking. If anyone will open the door, I will come in and I will eat with him. Because that's what his intention is for each of us. What is your anxiety? What's keeping you up at night? What is bothering other people that you as an intercessor can intervene for? And as you come each day and spend that time with him, responding to his word, don't be anxious for anything, but in everything with prayer and petition, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God that transcends understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus.